looks like I finally ran into someone that likes to play as rough as I do. Yeah, this must be a lucky night. I'm lucky? I guess maybe I am. But you're dumb. Real dumb if you think you can pull this off. I think you're forgetting something. I got the gun. I can get guns, smart guy, lots of them. Now why don't you tell me your name? Tom Cody. Pleased to meet you. exciting episode of not a bomb my name is troy and with me as always is mr brad andrew andrus andorson anderson it's, it's anderson. mr mr anderson okay i'm horrible with last names yeah. i think we've established yeah, that so yeah. um how you doing tonight brad doing fantastic i'm excited to be here with you and with brett sorry i didn't mean to jump on your oh man you spoiled but... the surprise dude <laughs> okay well um, and i'm holding up Two hands, because this is number 10, right? This, we... Oh my gosh, we're in double digits. Yes. You're right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, you're, it's already a good episode because we got the number of the episode right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, it's going to be another epic episode. This week, um, we are going to talk about 1984's Streets of Fire now. Since it's an even episode, this was my pick. And Brad, I got to say, I had so much fun last week um, with you and John talking about um, Scott Pilgrim. Uh, and I thought the timing of it was fantastic because we released our episode and then what a day or two later was the official 10th anniversary, 10th anniversary. I want to say that I planned it to be that close, but that was it was good, man. It was, it was kind of luck. I knew that the 10 year anniversary was coming up, but I didn't know that we were like almost spot on. So yeah, just like a day or two. Um, yeah. still waiting for that 4k release, but, uh, it, I, I, apparently it's in the bag. It's coming at some point. Um, but your pick and that whole discussion uh, in watching Scott Pilgrim totally inspired me for this pick uh, because Scott Pilgrim, if nothing else, is is an action musical. And so when I was uh, going through this thinking, man, what, what a great hybridization of two genres. Is there anything out there that's like it again? And instantly um, I thought about Walter Hill's Streets of Fire. But we couldn't talk about this one unless we brought um, our good friend back. Brett, say hi. Thank you for coming back. I'm pumped to be back, guys. Thanks for having me. I feel so honored. I'm on the 10th episode. Yeah. yeah I, I must say it's very good of Brett to like not talk until he's introduced, which I think is very uh, professional. Good job, Brett. <laughs> I try. Well, yeah. Now, um, if anybody wants to hear the first episode we brought Brett on, um, go back and listen to Dread. It was fantastic. We we tackled um, the Carl Urban film, and uh, Brett just was was dropping knowledge left and right about the film. Um, we also got to know you a little bit, Brett, with some questions. Uh, but this time we do have questions. Uh. But just like what we did with John, instead of doing you know five questions to get to know you, we thought, hey, let's ask a couple of questions for the three of us. That sort of sets the tone for this week's episode. And guess what? It's all about music. Okay, so just a couple of questions. Um, Brad and I did some research on this one and said, hey, you know, let, let's just how are we going to kick this discussion off? So we thought right out of the gate, 
let's talk, Brett. What is your favorite artist or band from the 80s? Ooh. Favorite artist or band from the 80s? Now, full disclosure, Brad and I had gone back and forth, and Brad, uh, I don't know if you want to go with the example. The the caveat is they have to have, um, I don't know, what, you got their start in the 80s? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so a good example is Aerosmith. I mean, Toys in the Attic, stuff like that really came out in the 70s, and they've had a fantastic career, but I don't know if you'd really peg them as something that was a product of the 80s. Uh, but I think, Brad, an example, you had Motley Crue. I mean, they kind of got their start in the 80s, even though they had some awesome music that was coming out in the 90s and beyond. Right, right. So, Brett, kind of kind of using that as some guidance, um, do, you ha- do you have a favorite artist or band that you just uh, totally associate with the you 80s? You know, it's funny, and it's, it's, it's kind of weird. Full disclosure, listeners, I was born in 86, so I'm kind of the young guy here. Um. But that being said, I love the 80s, and I love the music and, and sort of the, the the feel of the 80s, right? But I don't know. I mean, I feel like... That's not an answer, Brett. you got to pick one. I feel like every time I come on, I, I try to... I end up setting up the episode. What, would we consider <laughs> Meatloaf 80s, or was did he... No, that's 70s, 70s, man. Yeah, 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Although Bad Out of Hell is probably one of the greatest rock and roll albums ever made. Yeah, see. I'll go on record saying that. Um. You want to you want to think about it, Brad? Do you have yeah, an answer? I do. I I wanted to go with one band, uh, but I couldn't because I had to go with the Beastie Boys, who were formed in 1981. Ooh. Released one of my favorite hip hop albums of all time, Paul's Boutique. Um, in 1989. <laughs> oh wow! Um, so they get in there. I, I like uh, "License to Ill." Oh, I want everyone album. to understand. Originally, that album was a parody album of kind of the party boy life. Sadly, the BC Boys kind of turned into that parody for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yes. But in 1989, released the classic "Paul's Boutique." Um, I am a huge fan of hip hop, and this. Paul's Boutique was one of the things that really kind of made me love um, and understand that, hey, white white guys can be in the hip-hop culture as well. So that was kind of my introduction to that whole culture. So BC Boys, I was – I really wanted to say you too. I really wanted to say you too, but – Ooh, that, um, that would be my runner-up too. It, yeah, it actually so, was my first pick, but it I, something edged it out there. Okay. So that was mine. Yeah, Brett, I don't see you should have came out first because following that one up, I mean, well, that's I was, an awesome. See, I was going to say Beastie Boys, but I didn't know if that was. Oh, now he was going to say Beastie Boys. Yeah, okay. Beastie sure, Boys. Sure, sure. <laughs> LL Cool J was probably late '80s. Wu. No, yeah. Wu-Tang. Like, yeah. I'm going to knock yeah, you out. Wu Tang, I think, yeah. released. They may have. Protect they, your they neck. They may have been early '90s with. I think that was '91. Protect your neck was '91. Um. um yeah. Can I? I'm just gonna copy Brad. Can I say Beastie Boys? That's fine. Yeah. You can. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, you could be my Mike D to my MCA. Wow, that's fine. Very well done. As a, <laughs> as, as a fellow hip hop fan, in all seriousness, that that was. I mean, for for a lot of, of of listeners of that genre, you know, Beastie kind of introduced rap to a whole new audience, and and I think that's. And I have that conversation with a lot of my buddies all the time. Just the the significance of them. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll be honest. I mean, in the '80s, I probably I, I had the licensed still like vinyl album, 
um, that and uh, really Run DMZ. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love Run DMZ. Listen to them all the time. I I actually wish I could find a copy of their movie that they did. What was it? Tougher than Tougher than Leather. Tougher than Leather. I remember seeing it like years ago. But um, to your point, you two was one of the ones that I mean, Joshua Tree. I listened to a lot. I mean, yes, a lot. And yes, Rattle and Hum is one of the best. Um, I don't know what you would call it, like documentary concert film. Um, I, I, it's it's something that I put in on a regular basis. But there's one artist that their album is the album that I go to at any point in time. I just want to feel good. And I have seen this person twice in concert, uh, once in early 90s. And then I actually had a chance to take my kids uh, when he played in Baltimore at the Pavilion, which is sort of an outdoor venue right in the Bay. Um, and the album, it's one of my favorite albums of all time, which is called Reckless, and it is not done by none other than the Canadian Brian Adams. He is my favorite 80s artist. What? Yes. <laughs> Love Brian Adams. Reckless, to me, is just one of the best 80s albums ever made. So I mean, tell me what's on Reckless. Is like Summer of 69 Summer of 69, on there? Okay. Um, Run to You. Yeah. Um, oh. I mean, he's got the duet with Tina Turner on there, too. I mean... Okay. Um, it's, it's just, it's 80s anthem music I, at its... I, I get it, I get it. Yeah, it's, it's so good. And I, I, I like Brian Adams. I mean, I think he got uh, a bad rap there for a little bit because he was doing tons of, you know, soundtrack, uh, songs. Oh, the Robin Hood song. Yeah. Robin <laughs> Hood, Three Musketeers, I yeah. mean, and, and it got overplayed early 90s and that's what he was sort of known for. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I freaking love brian adams man summer 69 is is the perfect summer 80 song is it um, when the feeling's right i'm gonna run all night run, to, run you. to you yes okay boom yeah um okay yeah I, I, so great picks although brett uh yeah well see my like springsteen <laughs> i've got two but he's not 80s you wouldn't would you would you consider springsteen 80s Ooh, um, Born to Run was 80s, right? Or was that 70? When was Born a lot to of Run? my answers? I feel like got, had gotten their start before the 80s, but may have find, found the tribe. Because if I can say Bruce Springsteen, then obviously the boss is my pick. Born, born in the USA. Yeah, Born to Run was yeah, that was in 8075. So that's probably Springsteen's probably. Not in this yeah. category. You know what? We're going to give it to Brett, though. Yeah, I've got timeless taste, guys. I won't apologize for it. Yeah. Oh, it's good. It's good. <laughs> well, okay. Let's try this out. So we've got one more question, okay? And again, it's it's 80s related. Um, so, Brett, we got to know, what is your favorite 80s soundtrack? Lost Boys. To a film. Ooh. Lost Boys. Wow. <laughs> you came out yeah. with that one quick. Is there a particular song in that soundtrack? Oh, that, oh yeah. you know what it is. The the song, "Cry Little Sister." Yeah. Oh wow. Okay, that's good. I love that. I love oh, that song too. Incredible. <laughs> now, did you did you get the soundtrack immediately once you saw the film? Didn't. No. Um, that was something that sort of, as I rewatched it. See, I when I saw it the first time, there was a huge, huge. I want to say probably years. I mean, probably. Five years, six years until I watched it again. But after the second watch, that's when I appreciated how great my little sister was. And it just sets the whole tone for the film. Because yeah, you have a buff dude playing the saxophone. saxophone. I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> that's all I need. They could, they oh, should have stopped the movie. 
Yeah. Yeah. You can't get more 80s than the saxophone, right? In a in sort of a power exactly. ballad goth anthem. All right, Brad. Um, now, when I when we were talking about this, and I kind of came up with this question, I think um, for and let me make sure I remember this correctly. You said that the artist you were struggling with, but this one right out of the gate, you instantly knew. Right? Yeah, it's it's Purple Rain. Ooh. Hands down. Wow. Yeah. And I feel like that if was... it, I feel like if it's any other answer, it might. No offense, it might be wrong because <laughs> Purple Rain is <laughs> it's one of the best. Is an album. Yeah, it's perfect. I mean, you have Let's Go Crazy, you have When Doves Cry, you have Purple Rain. I mean, those are three what we would call in the business bangers. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. That's fantastic. All right, so mine, um, this one, I knew instantly what it was because it was the album that I played over and over again. Um, and it is none other than 1986's Top Gun. Absolutely, I yes. love that soundtrack. You've got Kenny Loggins, Cheap Trick, Berlin. Um, the Harold Faltemeyer score for Top Gun is fantastic. And he did a lot of 80s films, but, you know, Miami Sound Machine, Loverboy. I, I love that album. I, I've listened to it quite a bit. Um, but, yeah, that's my pick, and it's a fantastic movie. I mean, i, I got to be honest. The biggest bummer for 2020 is the fact that I can't see the sequel to Top Gun this year. I, I think they pushed it into, what, next year? It's indefinitely I, right yes. now. Yeah, and I'm telling you that trailer just looks fantastic because I'm, I'm a I'm a Tom Cruise fanboy. This I'll, close for Scientology. Yeah. Yeah, you're a pol- you're a Tom Cruise apologist. <laughs> I am a Tom Cruise apologist. I make no doubt of uh, I I I love his films from the 80s. I love his films now. I, Tom Cruise is awesome. Um, but yeah, that's let, you ready to guys talk about Streets of Fire? Brad, I I this one, I know you're going in blind. Very blind. Um, Brett, this was a first-time watch for you as well, right? Yeah, and the reason why I kind of gravitated to Brett on this one, um, and Brad, you know this too about Brett. I mean, Brett knows his music, and I know we've had some discussions in the past, and I thought, oh, wow, this would be a good one to bring you into because as much as this is a action movie directed by Walter Hill, um, it came out at a very interesting time in 1984 um, when MTV was really, you know, full swing. Um, and when we talk about this film, I don't think you cannot um, you you can talk about the director and we'll talk about you know the cast and everything, but you have to talk about the music with it as well and the people that were you know creating the music behind the scene for this. But, alas, it's on our show, and the reason why it was on a show is in 1984, when it came out, um, it bombed pretty big. But, Brad, I sent you something early in the week, um, and I don't know if you guys do this, but uh, I I was always a big Siskel and Ebert fan. Yes. And I go on YouTube quite a bit during the era of when they were doing reviews, and just, they have old, you know, uh, episodes of their shows up. I kind of miss that when, like... When the like the movie critic was like a celebrity, yeah, and was a big deal, and like if Cisco and Ebert gave it two thumbs up, like that meant something. Oh yeah, and and you know that they had a fantastic way. I I think they set the bar for anybody who does what movie podcasts, critics, reviews, etc. Um, they they didn't um always agree on the same things. Um, but to your point, Brad, when when they both gave two thumbs up, it really meant something. 
Um, and this was before the 90s when, you know, critics were selling out their quotes and everything for, you know, poster ads, etc. But I, I sent you the episode that Streets of Fire was on, and I was shocked because on that episode they talked about Gremlins, they talked about Star Trek Three, mm-hmm. they talked about Streets of Fire, and Once Upon a Time in America, Sergio Leone. Yeah. <laughs> so... If you go to if you go to YouTube, you can search for that episode. It's fantastic. But Brad, give us a little background on this. Um, when it came out, outside of those films, what was it up against? So, a huge one that they did not talk about was Ghostbusters, which comes out a week <laughs> after. And so this month, so June 1984 is so this movie Streets of Fire comes out June 1st, 1984. Uh, like Troy said, you have Star Trek Three, you also have Gremlins, you have Ghostbusters. You have the Karate Kid. Jeez. Uh, you have um, Conan the All Destroyer. Hits. Cannonball <laughs> Run 2. Bachelor, Par- ba- Bachelor Party. <laughs> uh, Pope of Greenwich Village. I mean, like, and the Muppets Take Manhattan. So, like, you have Gremlins, Ghostbusters, the Karate Kid are, like, timeless classics that it comes out, like, in mere days. So... It's crazy that, you know, you could go to a movie theater on June uh, 23rd and be able to see The Karate Kid, Ghostbusters, Gremlins. Yeah, and if, correct me if so I'm wrong. So Streets of Fire but, had no chance. <laughs> yeah, and and when it came out, uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was, was still, still playing. playing in theater. It, was, yes. it came out May 22nd, May 23rd, and um, so this came out like a couple of weeks the 23rd, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it it stood no chance, I think, for... And, and you know, apparently, if you watch the uh, documentary on the fantastic Shout Factory release, for Universal, there was a um, change of hands in terms of the executive leadership. And that's never a good thing for some movies because this was greenlit and um, started with one senior management. And then when they were, you know, thrown out, the next... A uh, group of executives came in, didn't know what to do with it, and as the story goes, there wasn't a lot of advertising, and, and this movie kind of came and went. I do remember seeing it, though, um, Wichita, Kansas, at Cinemas West, which I don't think is there anymore. Uh, my dad took me, um, and full disclosure, fell in love with it that weekend. <laughs> of course you did. But um, what what are the numbers like, Brad? How bad did it do? Well, so $14.5 million um, is the budget. It rocks in... At $8.1 million, um, it opens at about $2.4 million um, and loses the second weekend I saw it was $1.2 million, and then after that it's like 600000 and then after that it's just basically kind of limping to its final gross of basically $8.1. So, you know, not great. Um, and that's worldwide because this, world, this yeah, did not, get a worldwide distribution. Yeah, it was uh, – yeah, we're looking roughly, you know – I guess half and half, I guess, was international versus domestic. So, um, yeah. Not yeah, it didn't do well. No. It did well. It did amazing in one country, Japan. Oh, well. It's... It was a huge hit. And I, w- I wouldn't story... say, let's, <laughs> don't say you're huge. When you make huge $8 million, dollars, you can't huge say huge. hit in Japan. Japan loved it. I think as the story goes, again, just, just pulling some facts from the, uh, the documentaries, um, that are on the uh, Shout Factory Blu-ray that they did. They did a fantastic special um, edition of it. In fact, there's two documentaries, and um, I think 
I know the first documentary is longer than the film itself. It comes in at like uh, an hour and 45 minutes or something. And the second documentary is like an hour and 15. But I think the story goes is it, it came out in Japan. It was a huge success. Um, and Walter Hill talks about, you know, their love for it to the fact that, and I was not able to verify this on the internet. I, I tried to Google it, but, um, both, uh, Michael Perret and, and Walter Hill had both made the comment that in Japan, Streets of Fire is considered one of the, um, best hundred films of all time, according to, to the critics out there. That's wow. how much they loved it. Um, so let this is interesting. I don't know. What, what do you guys think about Walter Hill? I mean, The Warriors is one of my favorite movies of all time. So he gets a pass for me. <laughs> okay. Brett, much exposure so, to I don't have a whole lot. I, I enjoyed The Warriors a lot. Um, obviously, 48 Hours is, is, is very good. I haven't seen a lot of his stuff outside of those um, until until Streets of Fire. And so I, I'm, I'm excited to sort of explore what 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 themes are probably be found throughout his films and kind of what what you all have to say about about that versus some of his other films that i have not seen yeah what walter hill was one of those directors you, you bring up the warriors brad that that was late 70s um and the warriors was actually competing at that time with another film called the wanderers um and i i think we talked about we talked the about that movie yeah yeah randy katz and our good friend had um recommended that when we were doing a uh, movie matchup the pretension but walter hill came on the scene with hard times which is a charles uh, bronson film in 75 which is absolutely fantastic did the driver um in 78 with ryan o'neill another great film that was actually one of the first films that i got to see it might have been bruce first dern film. as well in that movie i, I think so okay. um fun story uh coming out to visit randy cat and uh Katzen, our, our good friend um he had taken me to the AFI in Silver Springs, the American Film Institute's gorgeous theater. Uh, and they had a showing of the driver. So I got to see that on the big screen. Um, Warriors in 79 was a huge hit um, and really got Walter Hill's name on the scene. The other two films did okay and, and critically, I think, were good. Warriors, you know, just he was a breakthrough. But it's interesting in the 80s, I mean, this guy was just putting out a lot of films in that 10 years because he follows up the warriors with the long riders in 1980, which is a fantastic Western. You guys got to check it out. He does Southern comfort in 81. So that's the national guard, um, group that it gets kind of lost in the swamp and ends up being hunted by the locals. Another great action. Oh, the film. not deliverance deliverance movie. Yes, okay. um, does 48 Hours in 82, which is a huge hit for Paramount, right? And kind of just uh, just jettisons Eddie Murphy's you know film career, just really kicks it off there. Then he follows that up with Streets of Fire in 84. As soon as he's done with that, he quickly goes and starts working with John Candy and Richard Pryor and Brewster's Million in 1985. And then 86, he does Crossroads with Ralph Macchio, um, which is... Um, you know, if you haven't seen that and you you like the blues um, and Ry Cooter specifically, that it's a great film. Um, and then '87, Extreme Prejudice with Nick Nolte, which is a little bit of a modern take on the Wild Bunch, another excellent film. Teams up with Arnold Schwarzenegger in Red Heat, and uh, was it James Belushi in '88, Johnny Handsome in '89 with Mickey Rourke. If you guys haven't seen that, you definitely have to check that one out. Ugh. 
And then 1990 enters the 90s doing another 48 hours with Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy. So he's almost putting out a movie a year starting in 84. I think 83 is the only one, you know, he missed. But um, and his stuff in the 80s, I, I would say, is is all pretty fantastic. Yeah, but you're also missing half of his output, too, because of his production company, right? Doesn't oh yeah let's doesn't talk about Brandywine, that. Doesn't Brandywine? Isn't yeah. that Alien, Walter Alien, Hill? All the aliens. Yes. So okay. that that's Walter Hill as a director, but you're absolutely right. I mean, in terms of a writer and producer, etc. Um, the story goes, uh, Walter Hill is the reason why you have Sigourney Weaver because it was his idea um, to really make the Ellen Ripley character female. So. Um, his production companies put out a lot of stuff. Even as a you know a screenwriter, um, he does write most of his films. This one's interesting too because um, Streets of Fire was produced by Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver. So one of those names should be really familiar to you, Joel Silver. Mm-hmm. Joel Silver, I yeah. mean, yeah, he's mega producer from the 80s, probably the 90s. Um, but both of Lawrence Gordon and Joel Silver um, produced Predator and Die Hard. So those are two of the biggest action films. Of the 80s, right? Um, but yeah, Walter Hill, I, I, his stuff in the 90s and 2000s, he's, he's got some other interesting things. I, I think a lot of people associate him with, you know, westerns because he's done Wild Bill and Geronimo. Um, but you know, if you haven't seen something like mm-hmm. Undisputed, which was in 2002, it's a fantastic, you know, sort of uh, prison boxing film. Um, Trespass with Bill Paxton um, is fantastic as well. Uh, Bullet to the head with Sylvester Stallone and and Jason Momoa. I mean, I, it's fun. I like it. Uh, he does he does good action films. He he has an up and down. He did Supernova, but then wanted his name taken off. Um, I can't say that's a, a great film. I think he he changed or he got them to change his name to Thomas Lee or something. But that's actually a Walter Hill film. Yeah. So he's he's been all over the place. Um, talk about the cast real quick. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Rick Moranis is in this, right? So he has two films come out that summer back to back. This one and Ghostbusters. <laughs> one of them he's remembered for, the other one not. Okay, this is my first note that I took, and I wrote it let me, seven times. I do not like Rick Moranis when he is a jerk. I do not like it. Like I do not like it when right. Rick Moranis is not right. a good guy. It doesn't feel good. I hated it. He he plays against uh, type big time in this film. I did not like it at all. It made me uncomfortable. He he is not delivering any comedy at all in this no. film. No, he he is an antagonist. Um, the lead of this, Michael Perret. So um, my autograph of Michael Perret. There it is. <laughs> is that a kissy there it face? Is. On the autograph oh, okay. uh, still from Streets of Fire. Yeah, there well, it is. Got the, Got the pump action shotgun or whatever it is, or the the gun. That's the thirty thirty. Yeah, yeah. Um, man, what an awesome guy! And and uh, he came on the scene a year before in a film, and I don't know if you guys have seen this, Eddie and the Cruisers. There was a sequel, Eddie and the Cruisers two, but no, no, nothing. Go nothing. check it out. Um, okay. That that was sort of his. Now his background before he got into acting, he was actually a chef in New York. So there's some interesting uh things about him but um he plays the lead tom cody um can his voice get any deeper uh he's channeling john wayne through and through i mean if you guys haven't figured out streets of fire um we get into this a little bit later when we talk about the film i mean it uh it's a western 
So, um, and, and they picked Michael Perret, you know, simply because uh, he fit everything that I think that they were looking for um, in that character from a Western sense. But oddly enough, that was not their first pick. Um, their first pick was actually uh, Tom Cruise, and he turned it down. How bummed are you, him. Troy? <laughs> oh, little, well, no, I like Michael Prey. I like, I like I, I how see Michael. I couldn't see Tom Cruise. I love how uh, Tom Cody is making fun of Rick Moranis and how tall he is. I could only see how that would have played <laughs> out if Tom Cruise and Rick Moranis were the same height, or Rick Moranis might be even taller. That would have been funny. Uh, possibly, and and I guess the story goes is that uh, Michael Prey and, and Rick Moranis just they didn't like each other. It definitely, you know, Michael Perret was not a Rick Moranis fan because I guess uh, Rick Moranis um, just antagonized <laughs> Michael Perret all the time, made fun of him. And Michael Perret, you know, he, he's honest. If you see some interviews and stuff, he's like, I don't know to, what to do with these comedian guys because they do that, you know, um, in, insult comic humor. And, and his only retaliation is like, <laughs> I want to punch the guy in the face. So there's some interesting stories about it. Um, Diane Lane plays Ellen Aim in this, and I think at the time she was 18 uh, when they filmed it. Amy Madigan is McCoy. We already talked about Rick Moranis. Um, another big debut here. Now, he had been starring in some shorts, done, uh, you know, I think an independent film here or there before, but this is his first big Hollywood film, and it's none other than Willem Dafoe. Oh, hey, Spider-Man. Uh, <laughs> With probably the greatest uh, haircut, leather overall combination you could ever expect from an 80s bad guy. Yeah, he just is missing the daddy collar, and it's even it's a different movie. Was that the only – yeah, okay. tell me the first time you see him come up in the crowd, you also didn't get major Robert Pattinson vibes. He looks just like him. In t- a, like a younger yes. Willem Dafoe? Yeah. yeah. With, no, I never sh- thought about that. Yeah. And why does right. his haircut look like a bird too? Like, like he's got his a name's f- Raven. I know it's, <laughs> he's got like a flock of seagulls haircut. <laughs> well, haircuts are fantastic in this film. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about Bill Paxton. He plays the uh, bartender Clyde. Yeah, in I'm it. pretty sure it's the same character um, that he then. Yeah, he then me. later plays that same character in the Terminator. The same year, it's like the same haircut. And when Arnold first comes in, yeah, he's part of the thugs that says. Oh yeah, that's oh, yeah, right. That's right. He oh, says my God, Arnold. I, about that. I was thinking. I was going more to aliens. Is a few cans yeah. and six pack, and then Arnold punches through his body. I think. Oh, that's I think right. it's the same character. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Does he have the um, tooth in that one too? I think he might. Oh, yeah. he could be. I don't know. Bill Paxton just seems like he was popping up in in tons of films over and over again through the eighties. Um. There's another – now, you mentioned the Warriors. You have uh, Deborah Van uh, Valkenburg is in this as Tom Cody's sister, Reva. Um, you've got – did now, does anybody know who Robert Townsend is? Mm-mm. Um, yeah, the, have you ever seen films like uh, The Five Heartbeats or Hollywood Shuffle? Um, he did a lot of comedies in the 90s, etc., he actually plays one of he plays Lester, one of the Sorrells. He's in the background. He doesn't he doesn't have a lot of dialogue at all. Um, but it, if you go back and check out his filmography, it's actually pretty good and very interesting. Um, now the other heavy in this is Lee Ving, who plays uh, Greer. Lee Ving shows up in a lot of films. He's known though, I believe he was the frontman for an L.A. hardcore band or punk band called Fear. So. 
don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but he's he's shown up in in tons of stuff. He's you probably remember him as Mr. Body from Clue. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Got it. And then um, Ed Bagley Jr. comes out for a little cameo, uh, Ben Gunn. And then this is the other one I didn't know if you guys knew that also star in it, um, Elizabeth Daly. She yeah, plays Dottie. Baby doll. Dottie from Dottie. Yeah, yeah. Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Voice top. So I looked at her filmography. Like she has become like a crazy good voice yeah, actor. Tommy Tommy Pickles from like, Rugrats. Yeah. yeah, it's like she's got like 300 credits to her name. Like, don't worry about her. She's doing just fine. Yeah, she's she's had a very prolific career, and it went in a direction I don't think anybody expected. Yeah, because her voice is super annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so it it's got a typical '80s cast. Now Michael Prey, I mean, you know, Eddie and the Cruisers followed this up. He's he's been in a lot of stuff. I mean, he's he's one of those actors that's worked around. Um, he he's been in Steven Seagal films as the bad guy. So um, I I think there was a lot of promise and um they wanted to do a lot with him. But if you go back and look at his, his, his filmography outside of the eighties and some of the TV shows he's done, he's just really flown under the radar, but he's still working even today. That's the cast. Let's talk about the other important fact. Now, I don't know if you guys notice this about the film. It's kind of weird when the credits roll at the end, you get, <laughs> I love what you said. This, this movie is <laughs> kind of weird. I thought he was yeah. going to stop uh, there. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's kind of weird. It is, it is weird. We'll talk about it. But what's interesting about the credits is um, usually when you walk, watch a film, there's here's the cast, right? Here's you know the, the big director, maybe who wrote it, cast. You go through all of the people who were doing the catering and the first assistant director, second assistant, special effects. And at the very end, you get to the music, right? So credits roll in this one. You get the cast. And then right after that, you transition to a song by The Fix. And the very first set of credits they start with is the music. And it's listing all of the people that were involved in this. So music supervisor, Jimmy, I think it's Eovine or Iovine. Again, last name, going to butcher it. And uh, he was the music supervisor. But then uh, Ry Cooter provided the music score through the whole thing. So the guitar riffs and everything else. The songs from the film, did you guys pay attention to actually contributed to this thing? You got Tom Petty and Ben Mount Tench did Never Be You. Wait, wait. Is I it Jimmy Iveen? Like yeah, the Iveen? Like Jimmy Iveen? Jimmy Iveen. Yeah. Like the inner the Interscope Aftermath? Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. There Iveen. you go. Is it yes. Iveen? It's Iveen. Yeah. Okay. He's only like he's only maybe one of the like most you know ten most important people in the record business of all time, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Okay, well, <laughs> that guy was the music supervisor. <laughs> um, Stevie Nicks did Sorcerer. Uh, Dan Hartman actually provided the only song that was a top ten hit from the soundtrack, I Can Dream About You. Dude, when that happened, I was like, that song no is either. from this movie? Yes. You should have led with that, <laughs> Troy. <laughs> You've got uh, The Fix, who wrote and performed Deeper and Deeper. Um, the Blasters, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, they do two songs, One Bad Stud, Blue Shadows. Um, and this is the most interesting part of it is, um, Jim Steinman. Now, Brett, I'm going to turn this over to you. Who is Jim Steinman? I've I've already talked about my love for meatloaf in this particular podcast, but so Jim Steinman on, on top of meatloaf has produced acts 
you probably know some of them. Celine Dion, Air Supply, Barry Manilow, Cher, Barbara Streisand. I mean, this guy, in his career, has, it's generations long. Talking, to, I mean, he'd, I'd do anything for love, meatloaf, um, Celine Dion. So Celine Dion covered It's All Coming Back to Me Now. He produced the original by Pandora's Box. He recorded Air Supply, Making Love Out of Nothing at All. So guy is just a music, a musical icon. And so with his name attached, I knew there was going to be phenomenal music. And the first song in the movie doesn't let me down in that regard. But we'll get to that when we. <laughs> but that's that's my Jim Steinman love. Can I, can I call it? Can I call a quick timeout? I just because I thought this was right. and I didn't want to mention something and be wrong. But Troy, you brought up U2's uh, Rattle and Hum earlier, didn't you? Yeah. Do you know who produced Rattle and Hum? No. Jimmy freaking Iveen. So there. Full circle. <laughs> Full oh, there circle. you go. That, that's, I did not know that. Okay. That's also, fun fact yeah. about Jim Steinman. No, that's good. After I watched Streets of Fire, I went on Spotify, and he also wrote a little-known musical that I'm hoping will eventually start touring again in the, in the U.S. called Bad Out of Hell, the musical. It is literally, it's literally, it's a meatloaf musical combined with two or three of his other songs that he recorded. So I listened to the whole Broadway re- recording on Spotify. It's phenomenal. It is awesome. Highly recommend that. So, yeah, so he, he does two songs or contributes two songs. Nowhere Fast, which is what opens the film, and then what closes the film is Tonight is What It Means to Be Young. Now, that second song was actually not supposed to be a part of it. Um, what happened was they um, they wanted to close with uh, oh there you go, uh, Bruce Springsteen Brett so yeah Darkness on the Edge of Town album had uh, Streets of Fire and they were gonna close with that song um, but according to some articles I guess the boss withdrew permission to use it and they they recorded the song at the theater uh, that they were using for the set. And they were ready to put it in, but because they couldn't get the rights to it, they said, well, we got to recut it a little bit, and, and they were going to end with Dan Hartman's I Can Dream About You. But they needed one more song for the soundtrack, so they went back to Jim Steinman and said, hey, can you provide one more song? So he goes ahead and, and does Tonight Is What It Means To Be Young. Everybody you know, looks at this and goes, all right, we're going to go rebuild that set, and this is what we're going to end on because they fell in love with the song so much. Um, now, that same year... Uh, he Meatloaf was trying to put an album out and was trying to get Jim Steinman to write the entire album, but couldn't do that. But uh, Meatloaf did a version of Nowhere Fast, but keep in mind that it first came from this movie. And again, if you want pure 80s Meatloaf, go watch that video. <laughs> it is pretty fantastic. Brad, I feel like we got to put like show notes out or something <laughs> and link to some of these things. Yeah. Um, Cause because I got, a, I got another little tidbit too for, this might be for just Brett, but I have, yeah, Brett, do you are you are you familiar with the games album, the Red yeah. album? Yeah. So he does a song with Kendrick Lamar on that called "The City." It samples tonight is is no. what it means to be young. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. Because when well, she says something about angels, something in the city, that's the core. That's the hook. That that is awesome. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Guys, I'm done. I'm done for this. That's all I need to do. <laughs> no, I know you have more info no, about this thing. So, um, 
Yeah, so I mean, it, it, it's a bomb when it comes out. Uh, it, it's going up against heavy hitters as a summer film. Um, it's it's for the most part has an unknown cast, right? Um, you've got a director who is known, is coming off a huge hit, Forty Eight Hours, uh, and the idea of Streets of Fire came about from you know his collaboration with Larry Gross. They wrote Forty Eight Hours and were working together on it. They knew they had to have something lined up because Paramount was going to ask for what's the next film. 48 Hours is so fantastic. He moves over to Universal. And they read the script. They, they you know, Universal's getting Walter Hill. They green light it automatically. And then it goes into production. Um, but just as much as they are putting, you know, the filmmaking and the cast together, uh, they are putting one heck of a powerhouse um musical soundtrack together and and you know as amazing i think the actual soundtrack is the thing i'm disappointed about is you can't get the right cooter like um score on an album and i think the best thing about this film is that that score ties all the music together because you hear his guitar and his riff going through the whole thing and it moves from one song to the next And what ties it all together and makes the transition so smooth is right Cooter's score, which is fantastic. He is a – he does more of a slide guitar, right? Because that was yes. kind of – okay. Yep. Okay. So that's the setup, right? You get <laughs> you get this 80s film out there. You got some uh, – what I think is a very eclectic and interesting group of people that are coming together to put a rock and roll fable on the big screen – so I got to ask, guys, where do we start with this thing? Um, thoughts on the film? Brett, I'm going to turn it over to you because I know this is a first-time watch. Um, what well, did you think about Streets of Fire? <laughs> I'll tell you, from the very beginning, that first song reminds me, and this is a really weird reference, and it, the movie itself obviously is nowhere near this, but a comedy that comes out the next year in 85 that is one of my favorites is called better off dead with john cusack and eg daily oh, funny enough yes. is the prom mm-hmm. singer in better off dead and she sings a song that is so similar to nowhere fast that i start smiling right away when diane lane comes on and the way that they film it it's very much like one of those 80s music videos where if you've ever seen a bon jovi video you know exactly that it's kind of got its own design, right? Its own feel. So I had a smile on my face right from the very beginning. And when when Perret comes on in a the Kyle Reese trench coat is phenomenal. And so from that <laughs> diner scene onwards, it just it it really it caught me off guard the, the sense of it was almost like American graffiti in the sense that you had these these old school cars and, and the, the dialogue was almost cheesy to a point that it, it it's it's hard to describe. And then it, it, I, I was also reading that the, the set design inspired Tim Burton with the original Batman. So Tim Burton designed Gotham based on yeah. this this whole sort of design that, that Walter Hill had. So so all of that combined, I didn't know where it was going. I was enjoying the ride um i do think i would have liked one so that they have a few songs i think the one stevie nick wrote is in this in the in the middle of the film i would have liked maybe one more Mm -hmm. nowhere fast 
or the closing song. I would have liked maybe one more of those in the center of the film, but from and, and we'll get to those. But from the very moment that Diane Lane stepped on the stage, I I think you we could have had more Diane Lane. To be honest with you. Yeah, and she she lip syncs the whole thing. I, I think she was a little upset because she thought she was going to be singing. Um, and uh, when Jim Steinman put you know those two songs together, it's actually credited yes. to uh, I think the group is called Fire Inc. And Fire Inc. is composed of Lori Sargent, Holly Sherwood, and bandmates of Lori Sargent. Um, so those two female singers are doing her part. And I think um, and those two, either so, one or both of them, are on Meatloaf's. I would do anything for love. I think those are the female parts, and, but I won't do that. Not there. That's my meatloaf. I'm done. I'm are done. You, are you a meatloaf stand? Are you are you a meatloaf stand? Those of you listening, you, if I'm never back on the stand? show, you know why, and I won't apologize for it. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> no, that's awesome. All right, that that's a good uh, first first impression. Um, Brad, I'm I'm worried about this, but. Uh, Go for it, man. What What are your thoughts on this? What What was your first impression just after, after you know the credits rolled on it? Uh, this might surprise you. I did not hate this movie. Oh wow! So <laughs> okay, whoo, bullet dodge. Uh, I do think. No offense, Troy. Michael Perret is a wet blanket in this movie. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, okay, go on. but I think it's it's really. So I kind of like that you don't know like the time period or where it takes place, and it's kind of like a weird noir a little bit, and it's a little bit of a western because he's like you know this guy, you don't really know his background. I thought it was okay. Like it's it's definitely a movie that's held up by its music and kind of some of these. Oh, there's DJ. There's the DJ from the Warriors, just at a random scene at the very end of the movie. Um, you know, I, I I think it's it's fun. I wish Defoe had a little bit more screen time, but obviously they didn't know that he was Willem Defoe at in 1984. But um, <laughs> you know, again, it, it. I think one of the nicest things I can say about it is I didn't hate it. Um, because this That's is a huge compliment. This is this is not this is not a movie that I. A would have ever seen without knowing Troy. Um, it's not even the genre of film that I enjoy very much, but it's not really a musical as compared to say like Greece, where all of a sudden they're just going to break out in song. Like that's not this movie. It's more of like, you know, they're going to go to a weird warehouse and there's a guy singing, you know, it, it's, it's the music is a little bit more in, place in the world than a normal musical so i don't know if i it's would you call this a musical because it's just got music as a part of it well i so that's a good question because as soon as i was done watching scott pilgrim again i was like oh i something was itching on my brain um that inspired me and i'm like oh streets of fire because just as Scott Pilgrim isn't a pure musical per se, but music is all throughout that film. You'd agree, right? Yes. Um, I, I feel like Streets of Fire is its rock and roll cousin, more or less. Whereas, you know, Scott Pilgrim's the punk rock version. Um, this is, uh, and, and surprisingly, 
uh, my son, I mean, we talked about this in the last episode, just adores Scott Pilgrim. The other night he was watching uh, Baby Driver. He, he introduced one of his friends to Baby Driver because they'd never seen it and they wanted to watch a film. And Cameron is like, well, well, we're going to watch an Edgar Wright film. And his buddy's like, who's who's that? <laughs> so he he's like, all right, we're going to do uh, uh, Baby Driver. But um, when Wait, I his sat friend down, didn't know who Edgar Wright was? Well, no, I mean... No, I know, but <laughs> Cameron was okay with that? Yeah, he was fine. Okay. <laughs> but what, what's interesting is um, I put this in to watch one night. Cameron uh, is playing video games you know, with his buddies upstairs, and as soon as he heard what was coming out of the theater, apparently he just jumped off and ran down here. And he's like, oh, you're watching Streets of Fire. Comes in like um, right in the first you know, three or four minutes of it. And uh, he loves this film as much as as I do. And I asked him, I'm like, well, what, you know, why do you like it? And, you know, his response was, it, it's a Western, but it's like a Western music video. Um, it's one one big music video. Um, and it, to your point, Brad, it's it's a film. I don't think unless you are into cult movies or grew up in the 80s or, you know, have an 80s fascination. I don't think a lot of people would check this out at all. Um, and it's one that I think if you look at the trailer, heck, if you look at the, the box cover or something of that nature, it, it doesn't have something that immediately draws people to. Um, but I think when you watch it, it catches you off guard. I mean, I, I've always thought this was just like the neo-noir rock and roll western. Yeah, they, um, they sell it as a rock and roll fable, right? Yeah. Okay. And, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's supposed to do what you were talking about where you go, I don't know what time this takes place yeah i don't know where this takes place some of it was shot in chicago but the rest of it majority of it was shot on the uh, universal back lot and to to get the whole nighttime they had to do these huge tarps and draw it across the set you know and they're filming in the daytime but to create a a night look they basically covered this entire universal back lot with one big tarp um and then um it's it's amazing. Like I said, if if you guys do like this film, strongly encourage you go buy the the latest Blu-ray. That's a two-disc edition. The documentary on it, um, there's two of them, are fantastic, and they actually have some archival footage of how they were filming things behind the scenes, and it's super impressive from a production standpoint. Um, but this is a film that I'm I'm just shocked not enough people have discovered. I know it's got a pretty good cult following, but for anybody from the 80s, to me, you know, again. If somebody says, "Well, I, I like Scott Pilgrim," I would say, "Awesome! You should you should check out Streets of Fire. Um, it, it 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 does a good job of that hybrid music plus Western action genre." I I will say one additional thing. I think so. I love one sheets like movie posters. I love one yeah. sheets a lot, and I think this is one of the more striking movie posters I've seen in a long time. I tried to go down this rabbit hole of finding like who it who it was and they credited to an artist named Reem, which I couldn't really find a whole lot of information on that person. But I think the purple and just it's it's an awesome poster. Yeah, it's uh I have it. Um, Do you have an original it, one? I have an original one. Wow. Um it is there there are three posters. Um well probably there's there's the my favorite three posters of all time and four and five is is die hard in uh big trouble in little china because I, I one of them better like, be blade runner and uh, no mm. my favorite poster of all time is the rocketeer that art deco Ooh, yeah. okay. it's it's just gorgeous 
the, the my second favorite one is the Iron Giant. I love that. Again, it has that 50s you know feel to it. This is my third favorite one because to your your point, Brad, it's it's so striking. And um, I remember picking it up um, from some vendor. I don't know if this ever uh, in college we used to have um, somebody who would stop at you know the local mall in uh, Evansville, Indiana. And some guy was always selling like posters and prints, but he had original movie posters in there. And when I saw this, I, I immediately picked it up and have carried it around with me since college because I love the film. Do you all uh, remember in art class <laughs> – no offense, Troy, this might have been – but uh, in art class, they'd had that black sheet of paper and you would scratch yes. it off and underneath was all these different colors. It, yeah. that, it gives me the, that kind of vibe. So if, if you haven't seen the poster, it's, uh, it's amazing. So sorry, Troy. I didn't mean to step on your. No, it's fantastic. Yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm I, I love the poster. It's one it's one of my favorite of all times. Um, but I, I want to go back to that beginning, Brett, because this film it does two things. It starts with that music and the neon. Um, the the audience is going nuts. You get that fantastic. I, I'm sorry, it is an amazing song. Nowhere fast. Uh, that version. <laughs> not not sorry, Brett. Not the meatloaf Nine one. Meatloaf one. Just, not not as good. Um. But um, the introduction of um, Tom Cody is one of the best introductions, I think, ever with that whole butter ni- uh, butter knife, butterfly knife um, sequence where that uh, was it the Roadmasters. He pulls out that butterfly knife, twirls it around a little bit. He takes it right from him, slaps him, twirls it again, hands it back. And he's like, let's try it again. Um, I think that's one of the best action. Yeah, and I, I think Brad of all time. hit the nail on the head with this. It- that whole the Western motif is just apparent from that very beginning. If we, we talked about it a little bit, Sergio Leone and if you, all of his great films, the 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 Clint Eastwoods, the there's not a whole lot of backstory, and and you don't really need it. And that's the great thing about Perret in this one is that you get a little bit of the, he and Diane Lane, the backstory, but it's it's filler for the most part because you don't really need it when he, when he walks in that diner. If you've seen if you've seen enough films, you know you know what's about to happen. You know it's, and that's and I'm okay with that. And, and you know I think Ry Cooter's like you said, Troy, that the score, it just does such a nice job of setting setting the stage for what happens in each and every scene. And and to to Brad's point about sort of the characters, and I I do agree with Brad in the sense I think the chemistry between Diane Lane and Perret. <laughs> I won't say non-existent. I'll say it's, something is there, but I do think that I think they concentrated more on the the look, feel, and sound of the movie. And I think if you listen to the interview or read the interviews, you Ray almost says that because he says Walter Hill struggled a little bit because none of the actors were above the age of thirty. So there were all these relatively unknown actors and actresses. Yeah, right. And I think rather than than sort of fight that i think they leaned into this let's focus on the way the film looks with the neon and the rain and the way the film sounds and and those were your strengths and i i don't think that's a necessarily a bad thing to to play to your strengths in that regard because yeah i agree with brad i think from a strictly cinematic acting standpoint yeah i, I think this this film can leave a lot to be desired but Go ahead, Brad. Is it? Is this supposed to be? Is this like? Are they trying to make a B movie? Like, 
do we think that's the purpose of of what they're doing, or, or were they trying to make something that was, say, more akin to like the Warriors, but it kind of comes across as like maybe leaning into the curve on being a B movie, and, and not to say that that as discouraging or anything like that, yeah. just saying that like you're kind of going on and saying like eh, maybe we don't have everything we need to make this movie what we want so let's kind of uh play to our strengths yeah, I, I don't know i don't go know that direction b movie because i think and troy you would know i think this was supposed to be a trilogy or a and so i from in that Correct. regard it makes you think that they, they did think that this was going to be something that that would sort of have a following and a but i, I don't know if the, the shift in what was the production companies or if that played a role in it or if i, I don't know i, I think i'm sure writing off six million dollars it sounds like there was a lot of Go well, ahead, well no i mean so i even one of the writers agrees with both of you um because larry gross has said that um and here's a quote from him. I can't put everything together about what didn't work, but the most damaging thing is that we didn't have the right actor for Tom Cody. Maybe if we had Tom Cruise, we might have had a success, but our commitment to be stylized was thorough and conscious and maybe too extreme for mainstream audiences. So you are spot on, Brett, that there was so much concentration on the world building, the style, the cinematography, the setup. Um, I think anybody would have struggled with this because it's cool to create something that sits in all time periods but is just a little bit out of it and even the speech patterns and the and the script and the dialogue it's it's a little bit of 50s 60s lingo you know with an 80s vibe it's all over the place in terms of style but um it it has style just oozing throughout the whole thing right and there's texture the the thing i love about this film is um, there? There's so much texture where you, you you feel the rain, right? You feel the neon. You feel the music. You every, you know it's it's dirty. You feel the dirt on everybody. The sweat. Everything that happens, you just feel it. Um, and I think Walter Hill and the cinematographer do a fantastic job of bringing that through. But um, I actually do like um, Michael Perret because I I think he's doing his best John Wayne. Um, and I think that's what Walter Hill, you know, was sort of instructing him to do is you, you're playing the hero. Um, you got to be as stoic as possible, you know, total badass. Um, and but I, I don't you know, to your point, does the chemistry work between him and Diane Lane? Eh, probably not. Um, does the chemistry between <laughs> Diane Lane and Rick Moranis work? No, not no. at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I just I would have I don't. I'm trying to think of an actor that you could have put in. Tom Cruise is, in my opinion, definitely not the right choice for this thing at all. No. Um, but I think of all the actors that they could have had at that time period, Michael Prey was one of the best choices, especially if you see Eddie and the Cruisers. If you see that film that came out the year before, you know exactly what they were going for. Um, and I got to say, I mean, I I love it when he's in this film. I mean, he handles himself from an action standpoint. I I like um, Michael Perret and Willem Dafoe more than I like Michael Perret and Diane Lane. Like, I think there's more chemistry between him and the bad guy. I want to see them kiss. I, I, I like to see them kiss. <laughs> well, That's not fine. kiss, but um, I think they play off each other, you know, so much better than um, anybody else in terms of love interest. 
Um, but yeah, I, it, it's a it's a western. I mean, and he's going for that John Wayne western stoic performance, and I think that's hard to do given the dialogue that they're using. I know, but even like with John Wayne and stuff, there's still some charisma, even if they don't say things. The way they kind of do stuff is still charismatic and and I don't know. I just well, and I agree with you, but I'm not saying Michael <laughs> Prey is John Wayne. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not comparing him to John Wayne, but I'm saying that. Um, that's what Michael, he's going for. He, that's what he's going for. Um, you think and, he sticks the landing a little bit better than Brett and I, but. Yeah. I, I do. Okay. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> to me, this is. This is all about the the scenes that um, he is interacting with everybody except the love story parts. Like the love story parts I do find clunky, but that scene with the Roadmasters in the beginning, how he just tears everything up, is fantastic. Um, actually, I think the star of this entire film is Amy Madigan. Like I think she carries this whole thing outside of the, the Willem Dafoe stuff. Um, and I think it's fantastic. I mean, so Walter Hill wanted to make a comic book movie. Um, but he didn't like all of the comic book uh, material that was out there at the time in the 80s. So his intent of doing this film was, and to your point, Brett, you know, there were plans for two other films. Um, but he really wanted to create a, um, a comic book character and um, kind of carry that through in a cinematic universe. That's why you get those hard swipes and everything has a little bit of a comic book feel to it. Um, but the role of McCoy was originally a sidekick and it was supposed to be a guy. And so when Amy Madigan came in to read for Reva, the sister, is, okay. she went to Walter Hill and said, you know who the best character in the whole script is? It's, um, I think the original character was Martinez or, or something like that. She said, that's the best character in the whole film. I want that. And I want you to, to just change the name to, you know, something else. And she wanted, that role and she convinced walter hill to give it to her and i i think she's the in terms of acting she's outside of willem dafoe's kind of creepy heavy she's the best thing of the whole film she's fantastic not like her character for sure um her haircut's atrocious but besides that (laughs) hair bad hair in this movie but i mean yeah this is the 80s where you just didn't have i don't think a lot of females you know everybody talks about um female action stars and I, I think they forget about Amy There's... Madigan in this film I mean she carries her own as much as Michael Perret yeah I mean they separate for parts of you know the battery part and I mean she doesn't is not a damsel in distress no not at yeah, all no She's I thought it was I thought it was eat. great the, the little bits where Diane Lane and Perret are off on their own and Rick Moranis is left with with McCoy <laughs> that's great I mean that's those the little back and forths there were were good. Yeah, I would I would love I would have loved to see. I thought the stuff between Michael Prey and Amy Madigan had had more charisma than Michael Prey and Diane Lane. I mean, it, I would love to see another film with those two riding off to the sunset as this one ends to kind of see what trouble they get into. I think it, I think it works with those two. It's fantastic. Um, I have a question for you, Troy. Yeah. 
Why do all the cars blow up? Yeah. <laughs> it's the eighties, man. <laughs> it's like it's literally he's shooting he's shooting those cars standing right next to him. I'm like, you might want to step back just a little bit. No, I even with like the motorcycle we talked about the battery, even with like him shooting the motorcycles, it's just like they're trying to go for some cool explosions. I mean, they're they're pretty cool, but it's just funny that uh, I don't know what kind of bullets those are, but you <laughs> shoot a car, regardless of where you shoot it, it's going to blow up. So. Okay, you're going to have a film called Streets of Fire. <laughs> yeah, I know. You have and to you have, have fire, fire on the street. Yeah, I get it. Hence, the car's got to blow up, Brad. Um, well, hey, let's talk about the stunt work in this. So um, there is some amazing practical stunt work here. And uh, there are people getting thrown around left and right. It looks super painful. Um, in the beginning, when they capture Ellen Aim and the motorcycles are driving up and down the street, just like taking people out. Did you notice yeah. the one guy who pretty much gets run over by a motorcycle? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> is that guy He's able dead. to walk ever again? I don't know. It looks so painful. And then um, at the battery... There's another dude that uh, is doing a wheelie in a motorcycle. The motorcycle blows up while he's on it, and he gets thrown. I'm like, oh, that that guy's dead too. And I then mean, there was another one where the guy, I, he's like going up a ramp. The bike, like, he falls off of it. Like at the last second, the bike falls onto other bicycles, <laughs> and it blows up. I'm like, if he did not get off that motorcycle, he would have been blown up. Like, Yeah, he was laying right next to that yeah. too because he skidded off of it. He was only a few feet away. Yeah, I was but like, yeah, the there are so many great uh, Benny Dobbins was the stunt coordinator on this. So um, he's got a pretty good uh, filmography as well. He's done the running man, Schwarzenegger, red heat, Schwarzenegger, extreme prejudice, which is another Walter Hill film. Um, Ferris Bueller's day off. He did this. He was a stunt coordinator on that. <laughs> so he crashed uh, the Ferrari. Is that was his? Yes. Yeah. Uh, 48 hours. He worked on that with Walter Hill, weird science. Um, so he, he did the stunt work on there. Bill Paxton, Tron. right? Bill Paxton's the brother in nice. that. Yep. Yeah. He did Tron. He was he was a stunt guy on Tron, and uh, I love oh. this one. He was the stunt coordinator on Commando. So they they they've got some great practical stunt work. It's exciting. <laughs> I think I swear a couple of guys died in the making of this yeah, film. I don't know. I don't, exciting and dangerous, like real life danger and exciting. I, I don't know if I'd say that the stuff's super exciting. I think it's a little. I don't know. It, I think it shows its age a little bit. Just for me. Uh, it, Dangerous and then exciting. Like, people could almost die doing this. I mean, I guess that's exciting to some people, but the fact that it's just like, yeah. It's 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 Western. So, yeah. it's a good point. It's Western 80s action. It, you know, even Commando with all the bullets and flying and stuff like that. Um, it, it The action films from that time period... Um, we're not going they in the US in 84 they were not doing what Jackie Chan was doing in Hong Kong in the 80s right so this is traditional american film stunt work um what i do find interesting though is what do you guys think about the the big showdown at the end between Michael Perry and Willem Dafoe with the two big pickaxe they weren't yeah. pickaxes but they were big hammers right yeah yeah two weeks to film um Walter Hill asked that they don't use stunt doubles. So that is Michael Perret and Willem Dafoe swinging those things at each other. Um, and they choreographed it and they were doing, uh, it took them two weeks to film just that one section. 
Um, I love it, and I I think you can tell it's them <laughs> because they look exhausted <laughs> as they're going. Yeah, when he the pushes way. Willem Dafoe over at the end, you're like, I think he might just. Aff- I think that might be real. <laughs> so I I'm glad you brought up that because I I want to point out something I, I saw from the Washington Post. It said most of the action climaxes are treated as such slow ways that you begin to wonder if they bored the director. Now, I think that might be a bit harsh. Um, you agree with that? No, I think that's I, – I, I think that the action isn't great, but I don't think it's throwaway and bored the director. I think that's a bit harsh um, because I, I think that the last fight scene is actually done pretty well. Um, hand-to-hand stuff and two guys with weapons – from what I understand is very hard to direct, very hard to make it seem like they're really swinging, um, that there's a real sense of danger. So to have two guys that are, you know, just actors and not stunt doubles do it is, is pretty impressive. So I think, I don't know. I I think sometimes these critics like to say things that it's a, to really, you know, go at directors. But I, I think that last, um, set piece at the end really kind of negates that from their uh, review. It's well, and would you guys agree with this? It's not, it's a light action film. I I really, as much as it is kind of billed as an action film, there's really only a couple of scenes in there that stand out, which is, I think the introduction of Tom Cody um, which the story goes because he was a, uh, they, they brought all these knives in when they're filming it. And, uh, you know, Michael Prey's like, Oh, what's that? And they're like, Oh, it's a butterfly knife. And then all of a sudden Michael Prey's twirling it around. They're like, well, how do you know how to do this stuff? He's, <laughs> he's like, well, I worked in a kitchen. I was a chef. So he's, <laughs> he's very proficient with knives. So he was showing them all these tricks with knives that he could do. And they're like, yep, we're using that. <laughs> so that's how that came about. But does he do um, anything with the knife besides cut day and lane from the bed? <laughs> Hey, then after he slaps the punk around, right? I know, um, but if you're going to be that good with a knife, use a knife. Uh, well, apparently in the original, it's, so the original script was much more violent. Um, they toned the violence down and the action down big time. I guess in the in the big um, finale between him and Raven, what was supposed to happen in the original script was Tom Cody was losing and getting his butt kicked, and he pulls out a knife and stabs him. Um, so he's he's just not going to lose, right? And uh, they thought that was uh, too much of a downer. And I do find it interesting. This is rated PG, so they're pulling back the action. But as a result, you can tell there's a couple of sequences. There's the battery sequence. There's the thing we just talked about in the beginning um, within the diner. Really outside of that, you get hints of action through it because it, it becomes a take on the searchers, like they're trying to get the girl back. Um, and then you got that one sequence to the end. That's it. There's more musical sequences and numbers in this than there are action. Yeah. And then there's a weird, weird striptease uh, part where you're like, this is totally uncalled for. Where is this coming from? Oh, yes. with the uh, in torches. Yeah, right? in the torches. So you're like when the blasters are playing. Apparently, that girl um, that was dancing was the um, was in really? flash dance. She was the double for Jennifer Beals, so yeah. um, she did all the dancing and choreography within uh, flash dance. Uh, in flash dance, so keep in mind the the concentration of this film when they were putting you know the music and stuff together. Flash dance was as big an influence on Streets of Fire as any other film that he was borrowing from, 
um, to the point that they, you know, bring in the person who does the dancing and flash dance for this for that sequence. But it was a weird outfit, I got to tell you. It just, just was kind of. Well, it's just it just has no <laughs> reason to be in this movie. So. Uh, it well, I, it does. I mean, this is yeah. this is one you know ninety minute music video. It's an eighties yeah, music what, video. That's what I you know at its heart. That's one thing that I wrote down after I finished the movie. I said, you know, basically I just watched, and here we go again, being a, a one ninety minute meatloaf music video. And if you if you watch his videos. He's riding motorcycles through. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's it, it was a, and I'm I'm okay with that because you know when we talked about, I think one of two things had to happen. If if you wanted the end fight, like Troy, you were talking about the original script. If they wanted to do that, then the whole film they would have had to they would have had to have sort of that upkeep where if it it was had to be one or the other. Either the whole thing you have to put more of an emphasis on the action and and not necessarily violence and gore but you either had to have more action or if you if you kept it what they ended up going with is pg then that end scene i think was was perfect and, and sort of consistent with the rest of the film and that it was like like we talked about i mean the hand-to-hand was very apparent because yeah the, they were in a full sweat exhausted and i, I think it worked from that sense but yeah i, I wouldn't necessarily label this film a, a pure action action movie by any stretch. No, it isn't. And, and I got to, you know, this is a question I wrote down for you guys. So <clears throat> I think hybridization. Use, yeah. Four I, times I, that I love it. That's a word. I'm, if it's not, I just <laughs> made it. There you go. Copyright. Yes. So in film amalgamation, maybe. <laughs> okay. Okay. That one. Okay. <laughs> um, Scott Pilgrim again was what inspired me to do this one this was not on our original list of bombs it was i think i had it as a side list and what i what i love about the show is you know we talk or you know we bring you on brett you say something and it gets the wheels turning and you're like oh my gosh i totally forgot about this film and i think even the last time we <laughs> talked on dread i i added like six <laughs> movies after we were done of and i'm like yep that's a bomb that's a bomb we're gonna add that to the list but uh what i always loved about this film um, and I think it's the hardest thing to do when you're writing a script and creating a film, et cetera, is to do that hybrid of genres. I'm not saying it's easy to make a comedy or it's easy to make a horror movie or it's easy to make an action film. I do think it would be easy to take a script or a concept or a design and go, well, this is an action film and we are going to concentrate on the action and the characters are going to be driven by the choices they make through the action and we're just... We're making an action film, right? Um, this film is, we're going to do a Western. We're going to do a musical. We're going to do an action film. Um, there's really no comedy, so they left that one out, right? It, it's a very stylized, hybrid, um, neo-noir-ish, you know, and I think it works. And I, I give a lot of movies more credit when they can successfully take genres and put them together um, and I think, you know, there are a lot of movies that try that and fail miserably because they don't have the right balance. Right. So to your point, if there was more action in this film, I actually think it wouldn't work. If there was more music in the film, I don't think it. So your point about, well, we need one more song in the middle. I actually think that would have hurt a little bit. Um, I think it's perfect the way it bookends those Steinman films in the front sure. in the beginning or the beginning and the end. 
Um, and I, I think it has the perfect balance of the Western themes, the action, um, and the musical portion of it. And, and any more of one or the other would have, would have probably made this just feel a little bit yeah, weird. No, I, I don't and, think and, it would have been as fair. I, I guess my, as I was watching it the first time, I think as we got towards the middle and this is now that I think back on it, I, I it, this could have felt clunky. I just thought maybe in that middle scene, there could have been a song and I, I don't even know what the logistically, how this would have worked, but where <laughs> sort of a slow-mo on uh, Diane Lane, Perret, chemistry building, where there's a song playing, a Steinman sort of meatloaf ballad playing, those two, but... It, it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, show me that show me that you those two... want more meatloaf. I just want to know that those two people <laughs> yeah. at some point in time thought, liked each I, other. I, because I thought maybe, so, because you know, know, at the end, they've got the slow-mo as he's walking out. He sort of turns and looks back, and you... And, and I thought maybe in the middle they could have done and again, like I said, embrace embrace what the film is. And it could it, it may have looked corny, but in that instance, I don't think it would have hurt to build a little bit more of this is kind of why he came back. This is why he's going I mean, and can we please talk about the the punch guys when he just hauls off on Diane Lane in the train? Didn't see that coming out of nowhere. <laughs> oh my but, god! Yeah. So the just right a little hook, bit right? more, I think. But yeah, I'm I'm with you, Troy. It, it, I don't think it necessarily took away from how I felt and the smile on my face as I was watching. I just that was something that I I considered it when I thought back on you know what what would have made that even better, and I, I considered that. I, I love well that last song. Um, I know why they went and spilt, spent a million or whatever to do redo the theater. Apparently, she, you know they had to bring Diane Lane back. She was working on Rumblefish, so she cut her hair. Oh. So that whole sequence, she's wearing a wig. <laughs> um, and I I gotta say, you're right. Michael Prey is walking through the crowd. He's standing at the door. They do that song, and it gets now. <laughs> it gets me because I actually think. Michael Pere <laughs> is watching her sing, right? And and get, I don't care what you say about his acting all the way up to that point. He acts the shit out of that scene, okay? <laughs> when he's standing at that door. And when that song crescendo, crescendos um, to, to the point, and then he turns around and, and gives us that Casablanca, you know, ending. Um, because, you know, that's that's the guy she loves, but she needs to be with Billy Fish. So Hill gives us, you know, a, a traditional ending has been done many, many times in Hollywood. But with that music and Michael <laughs> Perret, the one time he did act, <laughs> maybe in the film, I think is perfect. And then again, you get, you know, the neon streets. That theater is gorgeous when anytime they film outside of it. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I, Jim Steinman provided the perfect entry song for this film and the perfect exit song for this film. Um, and I love that sequence. Now I'm not saying <laughs> Brad, I, I saw you like put your hand on your head and everything. Like I wasn't bawling or anything okay. like it wasn't warrior. Okay. okay. It just, it just get like, I, yeah. When you listen to meatloaf <laughs> and meatloaf is just, you know, I'll do anything, but let you, and you're like, yeah, I'll do anything for love. 
<laughs> that's how you feel during that song. You're like, yeah, I understand it. I got it. It's, it's you so like that neat. word association. Right, I figured the more I said it, then you all would eventually start to work it into the. So I'm gonna keep listening, and maybe in the upcoming episodes, Meatloaf will get more love. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh, he's getting lots of love. Um, Brad, I I know you had some. Uh, well, before we get to um, some of the things that you discovered about the film, which. I knew a little bit about it, but I think you you drew this whole influence, like how much this movie influenced um, some of the video games that are out there. Brett, to your point, there were supposed to be two other films. The Adventures of Tom Cody um, was the trilogy, and Streets of Fire was the first one. The Far City was the second one, and Cody's Return was the third one. Never got made. Now, Albert Pune, I don't know if you know who that is. He's a director. He did Cyborg, Sword and the Sorcerer. Um, a lot of B action films, right? Him and Michael Perret, I guess, met at uh, one of the, the film festivals, etc. They did get together and do a sequel for this film. And um, Deborah Van Valkenberg uh, came back to play Riva, and Michael Perret's in it. Um, and it's called Road to Hell. It was made in 2008. It's the unofficial sequel to this film. I have not seen it. Um, I don't think it ever got an official release. You can go to, to Albert's website um, and stream it. Uh, you can actually see some clips on YouTube. They do redo the songs Nowhere Fast and Tonight is What It Means to Be Young. But it's one of the films, so if you know anything about Albert Pune, I mean, he, he did a lot of influential B films. Like one, one of my favorite Sword and Sandal things, Sword and the Sorcerer is fantastic. You know, he worked with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Cyborg. Um, but the this road to hell was pretty much at a time when Albert was just putting people in front of a green screen. And so, you know, the whole environment and everything is digital and it's just them acting with a couple of props doing. So it's it's super low budget. Haven't seen it. Can't tell you if it's good or not, but it's out there. But Brad, you went down the rabbit hole on on some video game knowledge that I had knew nothing about. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Japan loving this movie. Um, one of the biggest uh, video game developers out of Japan is Capcom, who in 1989 put out a game called Final Fight, and one of the three Final Fight. one of the three main characters in it, um, his name is Cody. Now Cody would end up joining the Street Fighter um, roster in Street Fighter Alpha Three, I think. Street Fighter Alpha 3. Yes. So he uh, is basically based on the Tom Cody character in um, Streets of Fire. Um, so does he does he look like him? Um, there I, is. I can't remember. I remember playing Final Fight, but I, I can't remember. He's the other got same like look that anyway. kind of old fashioned um, 50s sort of look. Um, now. <clears throat> He also, his backstory is he is kind of coming back to save his girlfriend who in Street Fighter is named Jessica, <laughs> but Jessica resembles um, Ellen Ames quite a bit um, with the red dress and stuff like that. So it's very, uh, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that, hey, you know, this film was huge in Japan because Capcom, you know, they basically, one of their temple Street Fighter is one of the biggest games in the world and a character in Street Fighter 5 and 4 is based on a character in a 1984 film uh, called uh, 
shoots fire. So also, I always like to do my math and check it because I'm a nerd. Do you know how much ten thousand dollars in nineteen eighty four is no worth now? No, it's, no clue. It's about twenty five about twenty five thousand dollars, just in case anyone was wondering. Oh, okay. Because so, he, he goes after Ellen Aim for $10,000. Yeah, yeah, and also, so <clears throat> this movie made me think about other music video movies. Um, and the one that came to mind for me is Moonwalker. and Oh, the Michael Jackson. The Michael Jackson one. Yes. Um, so I went down a rabbit hole with that and just watched Moon, <laughs> Moonwalker just because <laughs> I hadn't seen it in forever and... Um, I think it's a better movie, but you know, whatever. <laughs> oh my God. You did not. No, no, no bad. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. It's got, it's. Yep. Does streets of fire have smooth criminal? It does not. So therefore it Fair is. Point. Does moonwalker have any meatloaf? No, <laughs> I, I don't know. But did you all also see a golden raspberry, a nomination for one Diane Lane for her role in, Streets of Fire. Yes, she did gone out. Now, um, I think there was some independent film awards that uh, awarded or nominated Amy Madigan for McCoy. Yes. So McCoy got lots of love for this film. Um, and I think critics and everything else uh, really pointed that out, too. But, yeah, Diane Lane didn't get a whole lot of love and uh, got the the Raspberry nomination for her performance here. Worst, yeah, worst supporting actress. Uh... And, it, and it's weird because, you know... Diane Lane at this time, she's 18. She had she had a pretty good acting career leading up to 18. She'd been around for a little bit. So she's one of the seasoned people on the set, whereas, you know, the other lead actor um, is really coming off of Eddie and the Cruisers, his, his one film. Before that, you know, he's a he's a New York chef or man. He's working in Manhattan, I believe. So um, that that's weird to me that uh, she would get that nomination. But again, I would say that the best parts of this film are Tom Cody and everybody, but yeah. his his interactions yeah. with Diane Lane. So I can kind of see that. <laughs> well, is it time for the question? Is there any other? I, I feel like this has been one of those episodes where each one of us has been a, hey, did you know this? Like Brett <laughs> is bringing all the meatloaf references. You've got the video game stuff. Um, <laughs> everybody did their homework this week. I'm, I'm hey. super proud. We all get A pluses. Good. Um, any any other thoughts on this film? Um, you know, I, I think I, I would like to say I, I think this movie is is not bad, and I think the music is is really fun, and I think it's unfair that this is like a movie that no one has ever seen. I have I did a little bit of research, and you know, a lot of people call this the best movie that you've never heard of. Um. I don't know if it's if I'd go that far, but you know it uh, it wasn't uh, okay. So for me, I had like <laughs> less than zero expectations going into it, and uh, and I was uh, I was happy I saw it and I could cross it off the list and say you know what it's it's not that bad and I got to hear some pretty cool music. So would you is it is it something you would go out and buy the soundtrack to? <sighs> Probably not. But, okay. you know, it's because there's only like, I don't know. I, I'm not like you, Troy. If, if I don't know. I do like the countdown, the love song. I think that doesn't get enough, uh, get enough love or whatever it's called. What's that? Oh, I can dream about you. 
Dan Hartman song? Yeah, but it's all, there's also another... There's Countdown to Love. Yeah, yeah, that's on there too. That's on the soundtrack. Okay. okay. Yeah, it's good. What about um, you, Brett? I mean, is this is this a soundtrack you would buy? Yeah, exactly. I was I was going to say, I sort of transitioned... Your meatloaf Would fan, I buy the soundtrack? I figured the answer probably, is yes. But when I listened to this soundtrack, in fact, I texted you, Troy. I, I, it, right away, I was like, well, I need the vinyl for Bad Out of Hell. Like that, they were just... That, that this movie... <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I got to get it. So, um, yeah, so I, I would probably, yeah. And I do think, I had no idea that I Can Dream About You originated in this movie. No idea. Oh, it's a yeah, great. Yeah, it was the big hit. I like it, those guys. I like the Charrells. I, I mean, I thought I, they were I, great towards the end. I thought they were. And um, Williamson, or Will, Williamson, right, shows up as one of the Charrells. Um, yeah, that was nice. That was good. Yeah. Well, is it time for the question, Brad? Yeah. Let's so. Let's we'll, go we'll ahead. Start, yeah, we'll start with we'll start with Brad. Um, so we always ask. I mean, this is obviously my pick for episode ten. Uh, I'll 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 start off. I mean, I love this film. It, it's not a bomb for me. Um, it's one I watch on a regular <laughs> basis. And here's where Brad makes fun of me. I think, I think when it came out on DVD, definitely bought that. I think I, I had a Laserdisc copy at one point, but I don't know what happened to it. I own, I own the soundtrack on vinyl. For some reason, I own two copies of it. That probably by accident. Um, when I found out that so was forgettable a, that you, you know, you, well, no, it's not I, a reading endorsement. You know, it's it's one of those where as if I see this out in the wild. It's one of those I, I would pick up. And then, you know, as an example, I know Brett is a big Meatloaf fan. And so I'm like, oh, Jim Steinman, well, if you. I find another one, I would buy it in a heartbeat and send it to you. Um, but when it when it was coming out on Blu-ray and it was uh, some German print, I'm like, oh, got to buy that. Then when Shout Factory releases some two-disc set, yes, have to buy it. So I do think that Shout is, Factory slipcover, I think that's a beautiful cover for that. It's really nice. It is, and and you can it's the reversible, so you can see the original poster on it too. Um, and like I said, if you like this film, I you have to go out and and support Shop Factory and buy the two disc version because the documentaries on there alone are just fantastic and super fascinating. And and like I said, one of them is even longer than the film. Um, so they they put a lot of um, interviews and a lot of content in those. Plus the music videos, you can get the music videos that they released for it. But definitely not a bomb for me. Big childhood favorite of mine, and and I think it still holds up really well. All right, I'm so, gonna Brett, what, make up a word here. I'm gonna say no ish, no ish, no ish. Every every <laughs> no, no ish. Every part of me from a oh, from boy. a film sort of cinematic standpoint says that this this is a bomb, right? But the more the more that I that I researched, the more I looked at it, the more I sort of like like everything that we've talked about tonight, I, I couldn't make myself say it was a bomb. I, I just think that there was too much going for it from a, an, a from a cosmetic standpoint in terms of how the film looks, from an audio standpoint. Um, obviously, I've talked about how much I enjoyed the music, and then I think it, the way it opens and the way it closes, I think is just perfect. And and, and I think that. All of those things combined are enough to offset the lack of "quote unquote" chemistry between 
the the two love leads and you know the, the whole basis of the film him going after this person who they may not necessarily even look at each other or speak to each other the whole film but I, I think it has so much going for it and any of you guys know I'm a big music guy so I no I'm gonna say no ish that no this this is not not a bomb for me <laughs> no ish. Okay, that leaves you, Brad. I'm I'm curious where you're gonna fall on this. I, one. I was actually gonna leave mine with a little bit of a of a you know asterisk too, saying that you know if I was a film critic and I put on my film critic hat, everything that I would <laughs> want in a movie, this kind of fails on almost. Uh, but it, wow, wow. But it was actually kind of fun to watch and I really dug the music. Um, and it's like one of those movies that kind of integrates music in a way that I, that I makes it a musical, but not really musical. So I can like it. Um, so I, I will say, even though most of the acting is subpar, the story is kind of generic. I actually think it's all right and kind of fun and, you know, sometimes you just want a movie kind of wash over you and and you just want to kind of enjoy it. Um, and this one is pretty, like, it's not offensive. It's, you know, so I will say it is not a bomb. Uh, if I would have, if you would have told me last week, Troy, that I was <laughs> going to kind of like this movie, I would have said you're insane. But I kind of like this movie. Now, Am I going to watch this movie again anytime soon? I don't know. I own it now. So, you know, when my kids look at my digital <laughs> library when I'm dead, they can see why did dad watch Streets of Fire? But, you know, whatever. So, no, mistakes I, were made. I, I think it's one of those. <laughs> I watched it twice this week. I know you did. Um, well, yeah, because um, I watched it. And all of a sudden, when Cameron found out I was watching it, he's down there with me. And then uh, our good friend, Kevin... Um, he, he was visiting and he's like, Hey, uh, I know you guys are, are talking about streets of fire. Can, can we watch that again? I'm like, absolutely. Um, and, and he loves it. So, um, and, and it's weird. I I'm with you, Brad. I, when I recommended this one, I really didn't know where you're going to land on it because I know you like Scott Pilgrim so much. And I think it does what Scott Pilgrim does is that it does a great, um, a great job of kind of bringing multiple genres together and then finding the right balance. I mean, it, it, it's an action film where nobody dies. I think Amy Madigan shoots one guy, but he, he I don't think he's dead. Um, but nobody dies mm-hmm. in this film. And I'm also a, I'm also a sucker for noir too. That, that's also yeah. And and I know your love for Blade Runner, so it has a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, it has that look and feel. It's all <laughs> style, right? There's a lot but, of rain in that one scene. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but it it's one of those films where you know you try to describe it to somebody, and and you know I'll. I'll borrow my son it, it's a it's an 80s music western you know so it's one big music video with uh action sprinkled throughout the whole thing and um it i i love it big champion of it so okay um brad i'm curious uh we're going to number 11 so that's two number ones right and you get to pick uh and i i we really haven't talked i i know i sprung this one on you last week and uh i'm curious what you're springing on me for next week so there's a lot of ties to our next film it's also a joel F- uh, silver produced film it's also a neo-noir um action movie 
Um, we've Ooh. also talked about this director before. It's written by Shane Black. Oh, wow. Um, it is the 2016 film, The Nice Guys, which was recommended by one of our listeners. Um, Alex. Alex, yes. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So, I have – I saw this movie, I believe, when it was released on you know, Blu-ray or whatever, but I haven't seen it in a few years, um, and I'm pretty excited. I know it, you know, it, it kind of rolls up to the neo-noir um, – genre so again i'm pretty excited to to see that so yeah this well it's it's directed by shane black and written by shane black so this is a shane um, black vehicle this will be our second shane black discussion because he did another so you've you've picked two shane black films inadvertently um inadvert yeah that's crazy and i i love alex when alex gave us the recommendation um i i think he wrote in and he said oh i can you guys talk about the nice guys? It's one of the films that I think he recommends to everybody and they get it confused yeah. with the, uh, Will Ferrell, Mark Wahlberg film. The other, the guys. other guys. Yes. <laughs> so I'm like, well, that's a, that's a fantastic pick. And, um, it's, it's one that, uh, I like recommending to people. Cause to your point, Brad, I don't think a lot of people saw this. And then for something that came out in 2016, it does not come up in conversations at all. So, no, um, I mean, fact one of, I'll watch Ryan Gosling do pretty I, much anything. I saw that so, in theaters. You know, and sign me up. I think Ryan Gosling's comedic timing is one of the more underappreciated elements of him. He is crazy stupid love is another one that I think does not get talked about enough as something. Exactly. I That's one of my wife's favorite movies, and we watched that he is really too much. Funny. But he's like, he him and Carell really have funny. like. Real, that's real chemistry in a movie. Like, oh, I so wish Diane Lane and Michael Perret had that much chemistry. But... <laughs> you, so you wish they had the same chemistry as Gosling and Carell? Yes. I mean, okay. Yeah. So anyway, um, so we're doing the nice guys. Um, hopefully, uh, what is this? Because they're looking for oh, Misty Mountains is the uh, porn star they're going for in that movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Um, that'll be fun to revisit. Yeah. I, I, I. I think the last time I saw it is right when it came out on Blu-ray or something. So saw it in the theater, saw it on blue. Um, that, that'll be a fun discussion. And then we get to talk about Shane Black again. So um, good pick, Alex. And thank you for sending that in. <laughs> Brad, if anybody... <clears throat> wow, what happened to my wow. voice there? I, I think I hit puberty or yeah. something. It's a real man Yeah. Uh, so if anybody else wants to send us a recommendation or something we should talk about, how would they do that? Uh we have an email account like everyone else in the world. It is uh, not a bomb pod at gmail.com. Um, we are also on Twitter. That's not a bomb pod. Uh, and um, our website is not a bomb podcast.com. Yeah. Um, we're still growing. Um, I appreciate everyone kind of, you know, passing our podcast around. Um, Joy and I are still kind of flabbergasted every Every other day when I send him like, hey, look how many people subscribe. It's I think it's robots. I, I, I really do or something. Yeah. It, it can't be that many. So um, it, it, if you are real and listening, thank yeah. you. <laughs> it's like people because um, of Brett. It's because of Brett and John. It is. John. Everybody likes Brett, John. <laughs> uh, no, Brett, I appreciate it. Like I said, uh, we when Brad and I kind of put these together – and we run across a movie um, because we, we don't have a guest on every show, 
but a couple of movies always pop up and we're like you know what we could really use somebody who is going to bring some information about this particular topic or genre or actor or something of that nature um and uh since john was our comic book pick i definitely wanted to get somebody that i knew had a love of music um and once again man you you deliver i can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule and you know spending an hour and a half no. or so talking about streets of fire with us man and you're no, not, yeah. even though I stole my yeah, picture I, I, again 80s, but you know whatever it's so fun coming on it's always <laughs> a blast talking to you guys and whatever cut that i earn from this podcast just send it to the meatloaf fan page for me and so we can continue to and i was <laughs> surely there is yeah come on is there also yeah go page? check out I'm bad sure, out of hell I'm sure musical. you will not okay. be disappointed it's, it's it's always fun guys i'm flying out there pandemic or not and we are going <laughs> yeah i will pitch I, into that yeah we're sitting in the front row for for that musical uh well okay brad anything else uh, no, not really. I just saw that uh, Shane Black also wrote Monster Squad, which is awesome. Yeah. So Fred Decker, I think, is um, who he partnered with on that. Yes. <laughs> so, cool. Sorry. Yeah. I was just doing no, a little bit of... <laughs> you've already started the research. Awesome. All right. Well, everybody, thank you for tuning in again. And as Brad said, if, if you like what you hear, pass it on. And if you have any other recommendations for us, um, our list has grown exponentially. Um, and I can tell you, uh, starting in <laughs> September... We're not doing um, any we'll of the ones that are on our list. <laughs> no, we, we're going to use some creative math and do a theme for September of um, something Brad and I love talking about. But more on that here in a few weeks. And then October, obviously, we're um, going to be in spooky season. And so we'll be doing a lot of spooky films. So if you've got any bombs that you think we should be championing um, and spreading the love to, send those our way. But um, I guess with that, Brad. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Brad. Thank you again, Brad. Have a good night, folks. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.